everyone, welcome to Life of Brian, dot, 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 Maddox, that is the Christmas show, the last show before Christmas. It's not a Christmas show as such. Ho, 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 Mr Maddox. We haven't got any girls on the show today, Kev. No, none. No. Why are you going ho, ho, ho? <laughs> well, I, I thought, thought we needed some. Um, <laughs> I thought we were going to have Banana Rama on. Oh, oh, well. Oh, Robert De Niro's waiting. Didn't they have some? Didn't they have some most interesting songs? The Banana Rama Girls. I think they had really good fashion sense for the eighties. I liked the little bow in the hair and that sort of stuff. Um, and you know, yeah, they, well, you know, they sort of worked. The songs worked. I don't know that I could ever see myself buying a Banana Rama album, but. Um, I certainly would have gone out with a couple of the girls. <laughs> how, how magnanimous of you, Brian. It's actually, no, this is called Life of Brian dot, 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 magnanimous that is. Chicks I would like to hang out with. Oh, God, we haven't got a show long enough to to, uh, to accommodate you for that. What we do have, though, and you mentioned that we don't have any females on this show. We don't. We have Brian Cannon from Pseudo Echo. Let's go down to Funky Town. We are. We're going to talk to him about that and how that all kind of uh, developed. Uh, also find out a couple of interesting things about Brian that I don't think you or I knew before uh, this show and doing a little no, bit of research on him. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a little bit more. I thought I knew the uh, Brian Cam story, but I didn't. No. So informative uh, interview. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, then Davey Warner. Now let's let's make sure we get the right Davey Warner here. Yeah. This man's opening the batting for Australia. Um, he's <laughs> no, he's not. No, he's not. He's a hell of a hell of an author, hell of a rock star, and a hell of a good bloke. To be honest, yeah, done a couple of films, written, written a couple of films. Yeah, had some hit records and that, and uh, you know, yeah, good Aussie bloke. Well said. And his new book is called Dave Warner: Summer of Blood. Oh yeah, it sounds good too. And you so know what? Like that, 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 I'm looking at that now. That actually could be the uh, the Dave Warner the cricketer story. <laughs> yeah, <it could> be. <laughs> I reckon if you liked um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you'll love this book because it's set in LA in 1969, same as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Just quickly, mm-hmm. do you know anything about John Carey? John Carey. Yeah, John Carey. Uh, no, the name doesn't ring a bell for me. He's a musician, a politician, a actor. A failed attempt at being the uh, president. Um, I think he wears a wig. He looks a lot like Mr Ed. <laughs> these days, he's married to the wife of, uh, they own the Hines, you know, Kraft and all that stuff. They own it. Oh, okay. Anyway, he gets around the world in her private jet going to uh, climate summits and, you know, telling China and everybody that they can't have coal-fired power and, you know, we've got to protect the environment and, you know, get, um, you know, your carbon footprint down and all that stuff. Yep. Interesting the other day, he was at, one, at, at a summit and he was talking about the need to reduce emissions and that and during it he let fly with a fart and I just... <laughs> 
fantastic. Who are you to tell us about emissions when you can't even control your shrinker? Oh, fuck yes. You know, we've got to control emissions. And you can see the girl next to his face, she's gone, oh, hand something comes up to her mouth like, what the hell did he just do? So anyway, I thought that it's, it's probably on YouTube if, if people want to have a look at it, but uh, go and have a look at the environment crusader farting on stage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, very funny. Now, mercots.edu.au is the website to go to because at this time of the year you're thinking about, now what will I get I know what you can get someone. You can get them a gift certificate from Mercots and you can get it at a 15% reduction right now if you jump on their website. Well, you don't have to. You, if you don't want to jump on their website, you can just give them a call on 1300 576 It's a beautiful number. I'm going to say it again. 1300 576 it is a great number because uh, getting home safe and uh, this time of the year, uh, you know, people do stupid things on the roads all the time, but this time of the year, because we're rushing to get somewhere or we're, we're thinking about other things while we're driving, you know, the, the list in our head of uh, Christmas things that have to be done, you're not concentrating on the road, um, stop, breathe, drive carefully and then have a think about your driving uh, on a little bigger picture basis and, uh, and maybe... Give Mercots a call and do something about uh, being a better driver or the people around you being better drivers with uh, with the driving courses from Mercots. Suppose I had to drive with a caravan, which I've never done. Oh, dear. Do you reckon they'd be able to help me with that? Absolutely. Absolutely well, they would be. Uh, and, uh, and A lot of people drive on the holidays over summer. And yep, they do. And, and, and the driving skills to uh, to be able to uh, to drive uh, your vehicle, whether it's a you know an SUV or a four wheel drive, wherever it is, and you are towing, uh, Mercots are across all that. They can certainly help you out with that stuff. So, give them a call on that famous number that Brian talked about, or jump on their website, mercots.edu.au. Right. But we got to get in. We got to jump in our little DeLorean here and go back to Funky Town. Ho ho! All right, all right. With our mate Brian Canham. Now, Brian, I did a bit of research on you Uh-oh. and something I never knew about you, and I think it's probably what everybody would want to know. <laughs> you you started out as a cabinet maker for a little while. Yeah, I did. Can you tell us about cabinet making and how <laughs> long did that last? Frickin' hell, it's changed a lot, I tell you that. These days they just plug shit in and it does it all for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I started, I got to my um, apprenticeship, I started an apprenticeship, but the problem was is when I started my apprenticeship, um, like I just finished school, right? So yeah. I didn't want to know about school, I hated it. So finally got out of school, got a job with my dad, which meant I had heaps of free time to, to be do my band thing. And then, you know, dad says, okay, you got to start the apprenticeship. And I said, oh, well, that sounds kind of okay. So I go to the apprenticeship and it's back at freaking school again. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said Collingwood uh, Tech there, and you know the teacher all grumpy and telling me what to do. And next thing he's telling me to do homework. Um, oh, and so I, I wasn't happy about that. And I just said, "You want me to do homework? You have to pay me overtime." I, I said, "I quit school for the freaking reasons I didn't have to do it." <laughs> so it, it was it was a short lived kind of really. I think I did it for about maybe eighteen months uh, um, while the band was sort of ramping up and all that. But yeah, it was good. I learned I learned lots of stuff in the trade, and um, I did a bit of. Um, Staining of the furniture, that's so I like that too, you know. So I'm, I'm pretty handy with a spray gun, yeah. and uh, yeah, so I learned a bit of, you know, bits and pieces, made some speaker boxes and guitar stands. 
Oh well, that about covers everything. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever have you ever had to have another job apart from from uh, when when the music sort of then kicked off in the middle of that? Did you ever have to go back and work do anything else, or you always been a muse oh, muso since then? Yeah, no, not not from when I started. Once the band went pro, that was it. I never went back. I just prior to the cabinet making job. I did have a job across the road from the factory. That was with my girlfriend's dad's um, company, and that was making skateboards. So that was freaking rocking. I Yay. loved it. Yeah, so I, I did a brief stint of that as well. But once the band started, I pretty much said to dad, look, um, you know, I'm going to be touring and I might not be able to come into work every week because um, I'd leave sometimes on the Friday or Thursday. Uh, he was cool with that. And then, unfortunately, it just got better, so I didn't have to go back and get a gig again. Were you one of the you one of the only bands or the only band that appeared on Countdown and didn't have a record contract at the time? Apparently so. Yeah, I didn't. I don't even think I thought about it at the time. Um, we just thought, well, you know, we're not going to argue with that. <laughs> this is a, this is a, a good opportunity. So we weren't about to say, hey, by the way, we don't have a record deal and we can't come on. So we just we just went with it. But yeah, after the fact, we found out that you know you're supposed to have a record deal and. And it made sense because everyone they'd have every man and their dog, you know, um, you know, sucking up to Molly in the ABC and you know putting us on and all that. So it was uh, it worked out good. And then the next day you had every record company in Australia <laughs> fighting for you, so you had a bit yeah. of for you, didn't oh, you? They they played pretty cool. They you know they tried to pretend they weren't overly excited, but but they were sort of secretly all calling um, one after another. But they were playing it cool. So what yeah. song did you do on that first countdown edition? Um, listening the oh, first okay. single. Yeah, yeah, we just had like a because you you just lip sync when you do it on on countdown, of course, and uh, and they made like a video clip sort of an in studio video clip, and so we had to go into the studio and record a sort of a, a, a better version than our sort of um, you know modest demo that we had. And you recorded that with Peter Dawkins, yeah? Uh, not that demo, no. That demo, not, I, no. That, Peter did the first single when so when it was the official recording of EMI, um, we did that at three one with Peter. Was there much of a difference between the demo and the the record? So I, yeah. I remember yeah. seeing it on Countdown and thinking, okay. oh, yeah. yeah, then when it came out I didn't really notice oh, it's that not, much not, of a difference. It's not hugely different. No, no, it's 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 all the same parts just recorded at a higher level and Peter yeah. chipped in a few bits and pieces, you know, with arrangement stuff, you know, changing where, where things came in and out, that's all. True enough. So after that, which just – Anchors away and off you go. What, what happens next? You've got the record well, deal with. Yeah, we uh, did the record deal and I think we signed for an album and maybe the option of another album or two um, rather than just a single. So we recorded the first single first, released that, and, you know, good for us. It was a hit and that made things look good when we were doing the album and, and, and the budget went up a bit and things like that. So I guess if your first single stiffs, then they might, might not, you know, carry on with the album. But we, we were lucky that it did okay. And um, so then we just... Uh, scheduled the, the, the commencement of the album, Autumnal Park, which was be probably uh, later that year. Yeah, I think we, it was right. within six months we were in the studio at 301, camping up there at EMI, and uh, that, that was exciting for young lads to move into state for a few months. Did you have the songs already or did you write them in the studio? How did that first album come together? Oh, we definitely had them already, yeah. We we had enough to do a double album, which which was considered, but I think they're a bit tight with the, you know, double vinyl and double production costs. So we recorded down a rough of um, uh, maybe 20 songs or something like that, and out of those we uh, whittled it down to the 10 um, that we're going to make it to the Ultimate Park album. 
those um, subsequent tracks that didn't make it, that ended up becoming what we released some years back as the 301 demos. And they were the sessions that we did in the studio, just just live kind of plugged into the console and played them for the engineer and the producer to have a listen and the record company coming to go, oh, that one's good, that one's good, sort of pick through them. Right. Wow. And when you went through all the old songs, the ones that you hadn't used, yeah. was there stuff there that you'd forgotten about? You go, oh, shit, that's really good. I forgot about that one. Was there, yeah. Did that happen? Yeah, they, a bit. Like I think we chose the right songs. I think yeah. the 10 we chose were definitely the best 10, um, but some had good potential. So on the... The 301 demo version, that's obviously just raw kind of as as is. Those ones just stayed at that level and, and that's the recordings on the 301 demos album. But I think had they had we spent some time like we did with the ones that made it on the album, they would have been equally as good. That that album, that first album, I was reading, that actually got released in America as Pseudo Echo. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I didn't realise that you'd released um, all your stuff. I, mean, I knew Funky Town was a big hit in America, but... So how yeah. did the first album go in America? It did pretty well because we got um, one of the tracks called His Eyes was featured in the Friday 13th franchise. So I read that. How cool was that? Yeah, that was cool. And and there were a couple of songs that got us a bit of ground there So um, on the first album. So it's sort of a cult uh, favourite in, in, the, in the US. Yeah. Did you tour the US? Yeah, we did. We, um, we went a couple of times. The first time we went... We, we were sort of, I think it was just off the back of the second album, um, the Love and Adventure album, and we'd also just released Funky Town, um, one of the tours, and so it was coming up the charts as we were touring. We did like a college tour. So, the, you know, the college circuit over there, they have massive auditoriums, proper concert halls, and, um, you know, you just got a bunch of screaming teenage kids. So it's a great, great way to kind of showcase a band like Pseudo Echo because we look like we're teenagers. Um, <laughs> and then we did a few proper, you know, grown-up gigs as well, like the Ritz and, and places like that, the Roxy. Um, yeah, just sort of the kind of bigger um, clubs. Hoodoo Gurus and Inexcess did the college circuit too, didn't they? That's how they sort of got their That's toe right. in. Yeah. yeah. It, it's okay. a great in because, you know, those kids, um, as um, uh, uh, dear old Glenn Wheatley, rest in peace, uh, had mentioned to me at the time, he'd say to me, you know, these kids are going to grow up with this as going to be their, their summer break memory, you know, for the rest of their lives. They're going to um, connect it with you guys. So and that, that sort of has been the case. You know, we, we have a good, healthy uh, fan base over there, probably from that. So with Funky Town going up the charts and you being there, yeah, what, how did that did did that work for you? Did it? Did oh yeah, it was incredible. So it, it was you know it sort of debuted sort of in the top forty and shot up to about the top twenty within a, a week while we were touring, and so it was it was coming up and up and up. Unfortunately, our timing was a bit out because we finished our tour and it was still kind of skyrocketing up the charts. It, did, it wasn't in the top ten when when we left to complete our tour because we're doing a world tour. Uh, which had Europe and Japan and um, and New Zealand, and we were scheduled for New Zealand, so we had to bloody leave um, the states right when it was peaking. And um, you know, look, the good thing is, is it got to number six or something on the on the pop charts. Uh, the bad thing is that we weren't there to capitalise on it as much as we could. But wow. but yeah, I, I'm not complaining. Yeah. What about Canada? You got to number one in Canada with it, didn't you? Yeah, did it was you- a good good run in Canada. We we did a few shows over there too. I think we did maybe you know, half a dozen shows there. We it is a bit uh, of a blurry memory for me because you know you you just in a big touring tour bus and it's just it's just going everywhere and you don't know where you are geographically. I didn't know you know, shit from quite that age. I wouldn't have known where I was heading. 
Were you supporting a, uh, an American act or were you just touring by yourselves? Yeah, on our own. So, um, oh, wow. There was, there, there was talk of uh, supports while we're there and, and I don't know if you know the infamous one that, you know, we got offered the Madonna tour. So, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And, uh, we knocked it back. <laughs> oh! Hang on a minute. The one that got away. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what was happening is after the Funky Town release, you know, we were getting a bit of flack from the record company saying, you guys need to rock it up a bit, you know, this new sound, because, you know, Van Halen were having hits and ZZ Top were having hits and a lot of rock acts from the 70s were making a comeback. And so they were kind of pushing us a bit to go heavier. And because we were we were writing our third album at this stage and we were testing a few tracks out, but, you know, when we got off the Madonna show, I was like, well, why the hell would we play bloody Madonna? <laughs> She's, you know, a pure pop act. And so we thought, well, that doesn't match. So the record company kind of backed us on it. It wasn't like they were saying, hey, you've got to do it, guys. Yeah. They could see the, the um, you know, method in the madness, but probably wasn't the greatest decision. But <laughs> I'm, I'm holding my head high with that one. <laughs> uh, I knocked Madonna back. There you yeah, go. Yeah, that's right. There's probably not many artists that could boast that. So there. So the- I knocked back what? Lodge Stewart's management, if that helps ease the pain at all. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, the evolution of the pseudo-echo sound, because you didn't start it sounding like you you sounded when you did the albums, didn't you? It it kind of evolved a bit, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, I reckon. Um, I mean, like all things, you know, you're in your 20s and your taste changes so quickly as as you're growing up. So I guess in that decade, because I started, I was 21 when we released Listening, and then I was nearing my 30s when we did our third album, which is the race album, and, and that's kind of quite sort of rock. Um, yeah. yeah, we did, we we chased our tail a bit with that, I reckon. Uh, you know, at the time, the Australian market, you know, you, you're talking before all this international streaming and that, right? So the Australian market was our bread and butter. That was our main uh, market. But the Australian market also would move quite fast then. It wouldn't, wouldn't, you couldn't just rely on the fans you had five years ago because they moved, they changed taste. It's, it's a bit different in Europe in the States. They're a bigger population, so you've got a bigger fan base that'll hang on to you through all the changes. And that's what we had to decide on. We had to go, do we try and hang on to our fan base in Australia, which would have been diminishing because, you know, like I said, we the Aussie crowds back then would move on quickly. There's not a, There wasn't enough population in Australia to go, well, if we've got, you know, 5 10% of the market still, it just wasn't enough people. So we had to, we were in a conundrum. We, we really were, were damned if we didn't or if we didn't because had we stayed with that sound, we would have risked being, you know, dated. And, yep. and sort of pushed by the wayside. So we had to move. We probably just moved slightly a bit quickly and a bit extreme with one album to the other, but that was also because there was a lot of time between the Love and Adventure album and the Race album. So we were touring. We were touring the world and, and we were caught up in that touring and, and so time's going further, further, further. By the time we did that third album, we probably could have done one in between. Yeah. Well, Pseudo, it was a pretty progressive band when you first started. It was like, oh, shit, this band sounds like they're from overseas or something. It was like it was right on the money when you came out. So it doesn't surprise me that you're trying to progress as you yeah, go. Yeah, that's right, because, that's right. Yeah, because yeah, you we were right on the cutting edge when you started, so you've got yeah. to keep on the cutting edge, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, so it was just an evolution, yeah. So yeah. did you contemplate relocating overseas and, and taking the band overseas and, and basing in Europe or America or somewhere at any stage? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, had... Look, obviously the most uh, logical thing would be to move to the States and base ourselves in Los Angeles and, and it was considered. Um, I, I was really faced with a real tough decision there because 
you know, I'm close with my family and I had my friends and, and, and I had a lot to consider that I'd be leaving. And you remember this was the 80s and it wasn't like you can just call up on a Zoom and, and catch up with people. It was it was more complicated then. I, I sort of considered it and I spoke to Glenn Wheatley about it quite a bit at length. And, you know, he sort of you know, said to me, look, how high do you want to go? How far do you want to go with this? And you, know, you ask any musician, you always say, oh, I want to go to the top. <laughs> so <laughs> I did have to consider it, but I ended up, I just I just declined it. I said, I'm going to stay with my family. I can't leave my parents. Um, I'm a bit of a sook like that, a bit of a homebody. And I, my grandparents were still alive at the time. And, and um, yeah, I just, I didn't want to leave the family life. So I chose to have that kind of compromise of I'll, I'll just operate from Australia and we'll deal with it what we can. The, the bodies of the people who tried it before you were looted everywhere. There, no one had really done it successfully. Mm. Yeah, it's hard. I do think, you, you know, um, you know, you look at Ring Springfield, Ring Springfield, Ring, sorry. Ring Springfield. <laughs> Ring Springfield. <laughs> we love oh, it. Ring Springfield. Yeah, no, big fan. So, you know, Akadaka, he did Bessie's girl, didn't All he? of these Beth- things. They, they get he's, over he's, there, they stay there. Yep. He sang Bessie's Girl, didn't he? That Springfield, yeah. Bessie's Girl. Bessie's Girl. One of my faves. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, you mentioned before that you toured Japan. Now, yeah. that's got to be a real experience, I would imagine, because yeah. everything's Back clean and on time. And what oh, tell us right, about yeah. touring Japan. Yeah, you know, the incredible culture in the in Japan. You know, because um, you go there a lot, don't you? Yeah, we've been quite a few times. Um, yeah. Um, but back then uh, we were there for the World Popular Song Festival, so we took in some touring as well. They have the Tokyo World Popular Song Festival annually back then and and somebody put us, Wheatley had some connections with Yamaha and, and the organisation said, I think you guys have a crack at, you know, uh, you know winning it, winning the grand prize. And you, you basically it's just it's like the Eurovision and you, you submit a song. And we had this song called Take on the World, which was um, – I didn't realise at the time, but I wrote it about um, um, the runner, Steve Monaghan. He used to train next door to me. And so um, I wrote this song, Take on the World, about him when I found out he was Olympic champion or whatever. He's Commonwealth champion. Jesus, my sport knowledge. Yeah. So um, I, I wrote that song and then Glenn heard this song. He said, this is great. It's great inspiration about, you know, a, a guy coming from the bottom ranks upwards and, and being a champ. And so that was the song we submitted and, and we ended up winning the grand prize. And um so it was perfect. You know, we were there, we are doing this, uh, the Budokan shows, and then we did some of our own shows while we were there. It was the cultural difference that we found is the language barrier was mental back then. It was just so, so different. And also, as you said, they're very meticulous. You know, us Aussies, we're pretty carefree and we just, you know, put a bit of gaffer tape on that and that'll be right. And whereas the uh, Japanese, they don't operate like that. They were meticulous you know i had a i had a speaker box on on stage when we we're doing the budokan shows and um they would one of my speakers was a dummy i had a double quad box and one wasn't hooked up i said well there's no point hooking that up because you can just mic that and we'll be good you know i thought less complication and you know they were all walking around in this posse all with their white lab coats on and clipboards <laughs> and their <laughs> glasses and now there was this posse walking around the stage, and you know, I'm marking things down. There was a lot of, you know, expellatives and, and sounds in Japanese that we didn't know what they were saying, but it, it sounded sort of a lot of excitement. And as as we were sort of just standing there, sound checking, doing, I think I heard all this, you know, going on, carrying on over the background. And oh shit, something's going on. And and all it was is that the lead that was supposed to plug into my other speaker box was just dangling down the back. 
and now freaking out, you know, saying, oh, this can't happen. And, and, you know, the translator comes over to me and she's sort of saying, there's a lead, you know, uh, probably called it a read, sorry, but she did. But, and, and and said, you know, there's a lead in the in the back uh, that's, uh, just, you know, what what is this? And then I had to go around there and explain it to them. It was a lot of like a pantomime, you know, there was a lot of sign language. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was pretty funny. But they were fantastic in, in the way that they're just so perfectionist, you know, they – they they um they had to view the outfit you were going to wear on stage for the night at soundcheck because you know they need to set their cameras to that that whatever the reflection of your gear is or you know it's very particular. But the funny thing was is you know some of the other artists on that show you know they had their glittery suits and um, you know and all these crazy outfits and they'd come out while the artists were standing there and they'd hold it on a coat hanger sort of hold it to the camera, the camera would set the lighting to that. But, you know, we were going through our rock stage and so our, our stage outfits were just shitty old ripped jeans and faded T-shirts and they'd come out with this holding up your old cheap jeans and your, and your um, T-shirt. I don't know what they were thinking, you know, these these tardy Australians. <laughs> so what, uh, what what what's the world of Brian Cannon these days? What are you, what are you up to? Well, my main focus is Pseudo Echo still. Um you know, we have a, a different band these days, but it's still the same sound. You know, it's kind of like a brand, I guess. Um, uh, some of the guys have been in it for a good near, near 10 years now. But um, we just did a 45-date uh, uh, theatre sh- tour. That was pretty amazing. Much higher level than what we normally do in the clubs. But, you know, that sort of brought the level of the band up to that level. So when when we do do some clubs again, eventually uh, it'll, it'll sort of be a mini concert show, I guess. So... That's been uh, a fun experience and, and it's going great. What about recording-wise, yeah. Brian? Recording we still do. Um, uh, I take it pretty slowly these days. I don't flood it because, you know, you, you can only do so much. You, can, you can't really perform the new stuff live, maybe a song or two, but, you know, people come along, they want to hear the classic catalogue from the old days, from the 80s, and that, that's fine by us. But, you know, there's also a, a contingency of our audience that wants to hear new material and see what we're doing, and, and we, we're still productive. So, I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's kind of me um, doing doing the recordings. Um, I, I, yeah. I do it all, and then the guys, uh, they'll translate that when we do the live show if we do one of the songs. So at, at this stage, there's a couple of new songs that we bang in every now and then, but it is pretty much a classic show. Yeah. When you say you did this as a theatre show, is that like – you know, shows like uh, Geelong's got a little theatre there, which is great. I think yeah, it's only about six, six, yeah, the G-Pack, and then there's yeah. the Clock Tower in Mooney Points. So those sort of joints, yeah? Yeah, um, they were just all the local entertainment centres, you know, not crazy yeah. size. Yeah, I so reckon that's really smart yeah. because it, it there's a good, whole yeah. audience out there that loves music but don't want to go to pubs. That's right. And and you put them in the theatre, it's like, oh, okay, great. And they don't mind paying a bit more because they don't have to deal with drunks. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's really smart, really smart yeah, move. It, there's a tricky thing there because you've got an audience that goes, I just want to sit down and watch a two-hour show. I'm happy yeah. to sit down and that's cool. But then you've also got a part of the audience that wants to jump up and boogie. So yeah. it's hard to please them both. So th- that's what we're doing. The next run we'll do is going to be a club tour, so it'll be yep. GA. And then they can. That's that's all the audience that want to get up and dance, and that'll be fun too. So we'll we'll mix it up. We'll keep it balanced. Fair enough. Are you producing for anybody at the moment? Because you you produced a lot of records, including Chocolate Starfish's album. Yeah. And yep. You, I know you've done a, a lot of girls and yep. stuff. So perhaps tell us about some of the artists you produced and what, who, if you're producing anybody now. Yeah. 
I kind of lose track of all the bands I produced over the years. I need a little cue sheet <laughs> because <laughs> I'll hear it on the radio. Oh, yeah, I produced that. Um, it's incredibly diverse, the uh, clientele that I had over the years. Jesus, let me think about this. You know, ladies said, Chocolate Starfish, Chantuzzi's, Taxi Ride, Lee Kernigan. Wow. Kamal. Hang on a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, you back. just said Lee Kernigan and Kamal in the same sentence. I'm telling you. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, yeah, well, okay, Lee Kernigan, um, they, Lee called me up to say if I could uh, do some remixes for him. And at the time he had this nice country album he was about to drop and he said, but I want to remix a couple of tracks. So I did, um, I can't remember if I did more than one. I did one track in particular for him and he was called. <laughs> The Love Shack, not not the B-52's Love Shack, but his own version, uh, and not that song, another song entirely, just same title. And I did that for him, and they were really happy with it. They were, they were it was, I, I just sort of went with the, the kind of more, I just grabbed all these bits and then chopped it all up and made it a bit modern sounding and a bit dubby and, um, you know, kind of a clubby uh, sampled version, let's say. And they loved it. And then they said, could you do the whole album like this? <laughs> that was going to be Really fun. I thought this would be great, but it didn't end up happening. I think, you know, look, Lee's a traditional country artist, um, one of the more modern ones, I guess, but I think the camp wasn't um, too keen on the idea of him doing a remix album, which, it, you know, in, in hindsight, I'm looking back, it probably wasn't a bad idea because it could have given real mixed signals, but um, that was fun to do. Real, I really enjoyed that and, and it was great working with Lee. So, um, yeah, that was something different. And, and Kamal, uh, Kamal. Yeah, this is the one we really want to know about. <laughs> Kamal. Kamal I think it might have even been a jingle that I did for Kamal. So I, I did jingle writing for 10 years, um, quite sacrilegious, you know, selling your soul to rock and roll, but it's, yeah. uh, um, it, it was it was fascinating doing it. I, I liked it because I liked just seeing another industry. I, I kind of, let's say I worked in advertising for a decade but yeah. as a freelancer. And um, uh, Kamal, they were doing some campaign. It was a Coca-Cola uh, campaign. And um they were re, uh, launching this new product and they wanted Kamal and they were talking about, how, you know, they loved the thickness of his voice and the, and the sound of it and all this. And um, I, I actually went for a kind of a, a Barry White-esque sound. And, oh, nice. And he sounded fantastic. Yeah, you know, we did this real Waka Chaka Wah thing and um, he said to me uh, when we were tracking the voices up and I said, okay, um, let's let's do a harmony on the chorus part. And, and Kamal said to me, I've never done harmonies with my own voice ever. Nobody's ever asked me to and I've never done them. So well, that was um, novel that it was a first and he sounded fantastic. Like the sound of his voice in that baritone and doing a harmony of his own voice that was just. Oh, wow. I wish, I wish I could find it. I'll have to call him up and see if we can dig it up. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to hear it. Yeah, That'd me too. Cool. That's uh, that's uh, I, uh, jingle writing. I reckon's an absolute art form. Uh, it's a thirty-second pop song. I mean, it, that's uh, right. That's right. So it's just the good bits, you know. You just you know you just cut to the chase, just go bang, you know. Um, you, you know, it is a bit sacrilegious, you know. I, I, my, my real trade is being a rock star. <laughs> so it's kind of weird when, you, when you're kind of walking to a boardroom with a bunch of nerds telling you, you know, or hipsters, mate, mind you, telling you, you know, oh, I think it should go this way. Oh, can you take that bit out? Or, you know, and I'm just going, Jesus, you know, how, how about I make those bloody decisions? You know, those gold records up there. But, yeah, so you, you, do, you sort of get a little bit pushed around because, you know, they, they've got to think of their client. They're just going sell, 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 and you're hearing it music, music. So... Yeah. Um, there's a compromise there, you know. Um, but I, you know, it's it, as far as honing your skill. Like you, you know, you got to remember they they just go into a meeting and they say, oh, you know, we got this ad for freaking I don't know, bloody twisty ad or something, and you know, we want this and we want that, and so they're giving you all this brief. So it is um, 
challenging and I found it kind of stimulating meeting the briefs and, and, and you know, putting in my two bobs about how I thought it should go and it's kind of weird because you've got to, you know, they tell you all the background research of some, you know, shampoo or something and you're going, oh, great, you know, fascinating stuff. But anyway, here's my music. And, um, <laughs> yes. you know, they kind of want you to absorb it like they do and get right into it, and I never did. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I just said, no, I'm, I, I, I just hear, and then I'd go away and do my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's probably the best way to best way to handle it. <laughs> hey, what um what uh, what role? Because I've I've seen various stories and heard various stories over the years of what role Molly played in uh, in in pseudo echo, a being found, b finding funky town, all that stuff. How all that came? Where where does where does Molly fit in all of this? Well, well, Molly. Okay, so going back to my teen years when I was just barely eighteen. Um, Molly used to DJ at the Croc. The Croc's Manor, Park Hotel, you know, yeah. Out yeah. in the um, northern suburbs there. Um, Molly DJ there and I used to go to his the, the night, Thursday night, that he used to DJ at the Croc. He was good at playing, you know, the latest stuff. Like he was really good at, you know, showcasing new tunes from new acts. And that's how I heard Funky Town. I heard him playing it, you know, one packed club night. And I just, the song stuck with me and... It stuck with me for the next six years, and that was when I released it as our own cover. Funny thing is, is I, I somebody introduced me to Molly when I used to just go there. Just I'd literally just stand next to his DJ booth and just listen to what he was playing and check the reaction. And um, so some years later, somebody tipped him off and said, you've got to see this band, Pseudo Echo. And he said, all right. He did have no idea. It was me, the little guy who used to stand next to the DJ booth <laughs> Thursday night. And so when he came along to the gig, he was kind of a bit freaked out. He went, "Oh, this little kid, I know him." And um, came backstage, and it was it, it was great. You know, came back with a posse. I always tell this story at our gigs because he did. He came backstage, and he had about five people with him, including Pete Andre. We were impressed. Yeah, you know, we thought, "Oh, this is freaking unreal." This is you know Molly off countdown, and he's backstage at our gig now. That, that's how that thing came about because Molly said to us, have you guys got a deal, what's happening and all this, and I think somebody gave him a copy of our demo and then within a week he called us up and said, I want to put you on the show. So he he could see that there was something in it. There was um, some sort of opportunity to be had here and, um, and you know, that was his job, his championing things. So I think he, he embraced it with pseudos and thought this is right for the picking. No one's no one's had a crack at them yet. I'm I'm gonna showcase it and I'm gonna take over. And and that he did and with a with a plum. So it was it was a it was a good job that he did. And so we, we maintained just a, a mutual respect, I think, over the years. And that's pretty much all it was. I, I, I didn't ask him for anything else and he didn't ask me for anything else down the line. We just uh we just put out our songs and he liked them and he would uh, you know, do his bit by promoting them if he thought it was good and he did. So Works for both of us. Beautiful. What about what about Peter Andre? Did he ask you for something down the track or what? <laughs> no, P- Peter, I, I never really um, – I didn't see much of him after that, I don't think. Um, I think his sister came to one of our shows in more recent years and said he said hello and stuff like that. So that was good. And um, Did, she, like, did, she, did she have abs? She probably did, you know, from did, the, and, from the and, ad master. Did, did Peter Andre have a shirt on when he came backstage with Molly? <laughs> that, that I can't be sure of. Maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe open jacket. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Open jacket. you got to get a load of my abs. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. So uh, Funky Town, uh, I want to ask you more specifically about that. Oh, so yeah. when, when, that, when that sort of, when you decided to do a, record a version of it, did you have any idea that that would? Because uh, I, I, I know I've read somewhere or heard somewhere that the American record <laughs> company thought you were off your head and shouldn't have done. Yeah, it. that's right. 
So, so, so as I backtracked, you know, I said I heard that Molly played that song some five, six years previous, and I, we were in the middle of the Love and Adventure tour, having lunch with a friend who was a DJ, and um, we're having a coffee, and he just he goes over to the decks and puts on Funky Town, the original. <laughs> I remember just going, you know, when when five years when you're in your twenties, it's quite nostalgic, you know, like, and I remember going, oh, this old song, oh, I remember this is great, I love it, and so I went off to sound check the next day because we were in the, on the tour, and I just started noodling and playing that what I'd heard, Funky Town, dang it, and then I sort of, it was a bit, I couldn't sing it in the key that it was in because it was done for a female vocal, so I was sort of trying to transpose it, I'm moving around, eventually I found the key, which was way, mild. it couldn't be more polar opposite key to the original, and um, I just started jamming it, and the guys started joining in, and, and we said, yeah, it's, it's a no-brainer, it's only got about three, three or four chords, and about 10 lyrics so <laughs> i'm jamming away and then you know we always mucked around at, at soundcheck that's when we did the most jamming and the most messing around and we said why don't we chuck this in the encore tonight and um you know we've got it down pretty well and so we did and um we weren't sure how it'd be received we thought maybe you know people look at us like idiots or whatever but we, we were going to have some fun with it anyway and um it went over um miraculously well we, we couldn't believe the applaud we got afterwards and um uh, we just said this is going to stay in the set now. We'll do this every night on the rest of the Love and Adventure tour. We'll do this as the encore. So we did. And then funny thing happened. One day um, I was in the office, in the, our management office. Our management back in those days, you probably remember, Kevin, is that we shared uh, with Eon FM yep. in Bank Street, South yep. Melbourne. And um, so, you know, you bump into all the DJs and, and I'm walking down the hallway one day and I see Lee Simon coming down the stairs and he just looks at me and he says, um, he goes, oh, you know, you've got to, you've got to release that song to smash. And I, I sort of stopped for a minute and I said, which song? He said, Funky Town. And and then I went, oh, right. So how do you even know that we do Funky Town? And he just said, oh, yeah, I've got more waves. And somebody had given him a desk tape. Somebody had done a desk tape of it and given it to him and he heard it and he said, you got to do it, go record it. And I, I hadn't actually thought about recording of it. It was just a fun live song. And then um, so on that suggestion, I went in and talked to Glenn, told him that, and he was not sure because, you know, he's 70s old school and he, he sees that song as a d- disco song. So he wasn't really sure about it. But he, he did know we were, we were killing it with the live version. But then, you know, Lee pops his head in and says, mate, you've got to do it. And then before you know it, you know, the head of Triple M or Eon FM is telling him to release his song. Um, and that was enough to convince Glenn, and 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 I was all for it. And then we were met with that little bit of resistance because we were in the process of doing a big deal with the American label, and they they just said, "What the hell? <laughs> we just killed Disco. What are you guys nuts? You know, um, it's all over." <laughs> and and so we sort of had to keep, you know, you have to hear our version. It's not it's not really anything like the original. And so. They, they weren't really happy. They just said, and I understand their point of view because I was just listening to the lip sync version and going, what the fuck are they talking about? You know, like yeah. this. So um, what, what we did do is I kind of rebelled a bit and said, you know what, guys, we're doing this regardless. I'm taking us into the studio. I'll do it off my own back. Because even our local label were a little bit hesitant because of the reaction from the US. Um, so we just went in and did it anyway. We just said, don't worry about it. We'll deal with the finance and all that later on. But we went into... Um, Platinum Studios in Melbourne, and we put it down. And, and Ross Grazer, who is kind of part of the Wheatley organization, then he also produced Whispering Jack and all that stuff with John, all John, all John stuff. Ross came in as a kind of a, a timekeeper, kind of to oversee because we were just kind of a bunch of naughty boys. So he came in to, to watch keep, and that was good. Ross was great. He was a great 
he was bouncing back and ideas, things like that with us. But um, yeah, we just we bunged it down. We we already sort of had the the general idea of it. We did do a quick demo before we went in the studio to belt it into shape more and give it our own sound. And um, by the time we got it all together and presented it to the US label, I think it had already been released here and was racing up the charts. So it, they didn't take much convincing then. They just said, oh, yeah, great idea. We always thought that would be it, you know, so <laughs> they were right behind it. <laughs> uh, it's still to this day a turn the radio volume knob up uh, song. Yeah. It, it's just one of those songs. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and you know, I'll tell you a bit of trivia, trivia about it. When we recorded our first version of it in the studio, we, we demoed it at, at, at our home studio, took it into Platinum, bunged it down. It had this big, wanky, arty-farty intro on it, which sounded a bit like maybe kind of like Dire Straits' um, Money for Nothing. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. A bit of ambient synth sounds and little drum shuffles and all of a sudden it just went blam, and into the song. And that was all very well. So we cut together that version, mixed it off, and then we were doing the extended version. They, they weren't remixes in those days. They were just extended. They were just long and, you know, took the vocal out, put the guitar on, did, did, just mixed it up sort of thing and did a, an extended version. We were doing the extended version and there was this guitar riff that I was playing in the outro of the song underneath all the right at the very end. This is going out. We're doing our 80s. And all this stuff. And um, I had this guitar. It was just sort of banging away in the background. So when we were doing the extended mix, I just turned on the kick drum and just that guitar riff. And we went, oh, that's such a cool sound. Like it's just like this. And so we cut that onto the uh, 12 inch. And that was the opening of that. Took it home that night and we all listened to it and listened to the 7 inch. We all came back. It was unanimous the next day. We said, that's to be the opening of the 7 inch. So the bloody big ambient bit we did, we were awakened off the we Pink Floyd. We just cut that off. <laughs> we just cut it off and, and got the, the riff and went, bung that on the start and it just cut it right where it goes. And, and that's how it became the, the, uh, the anthemic uh, opening to Funky Town. Yeah, it's a great a great opening. Just jumps out of the radio yeah. and jumps obviously jumps out live as well. No, no, good stuff. Hey, beautiful to catch up with you, mate. Yeah, good on you, Brian. Likewise. Good chatting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, take care and, uh, and and many more gigs for now in the future. Great. Thanks, guys.
Officially to Funky Town. That is that is one of the best cover version songs. Talk about uh, when you take a song and do a cover version of it, you've got to make it better. He not only made it better, he now owns that song. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, there was a real period there in the late 80s where everybody started doing cover versions. I think uh, Martin Plaza did Concrete and Clay. Yeah, he did, yeah. did. we got to get out of this place. And suddenly it was very cool to do covers. And as you say, I think, Brian's version, which is a cover version, but 
he did make it his own, and it's um, a really good version of oh, that yeah. song. And, the, and yeah. for me always the test is when you hear the original, you either go, oh, yeah, I like that. But when you hear the original, the Lips Incorporated uh, version of the Lip Sync version of that, God, it sounds wimpy. <laughs> oh. It just is really wimpy and kind of like, oh, okay. Tell you someone who's not wimpy. Who's that? Our next guest. Well, he's faced the might of the uh, English Bolt. No, not that Dave Warner. It's no. The, it's the man who did, for, uh, you know, for, uh, The Suburban Boy, uh, but uh, now is a great writer, very successful uh, novelist, and his latest is called Summer of Blood. And he loves footy. He does. And we're going to yeah. find out all about him right now. Uh, Dave Warner joins us here on Life of Brian. Firstly, the the book, what a monster book this one is, and it's your 12th adult novel. Yeah, it's the 12th crime novel that I've written and, um, you know, I had a lot of fun doing this one. It's probably, yeah, probably had the most fun of any of them because uh, it's set in 1967 at the height of hippiedom in the summer of love and, you know, I always um, would have loved to have been there instead of at the Christian Brothers School where I was in Perth in 1967. So <laughs> it's my way of vicariously getting there and, Placing myself, you know, at the time that uh, Janis Joplin and Hendrix and Country Joe and the Fish and all those acts were bursting onto the scene. Now, before we explore the uh, the annals of the of the book, uh, let's go back to the Christian Brothers School in Perth. Were you getting the cuts for not getting your Latin right back in those days? Were you? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you had um, yeah, we had the 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 ten questions in the vocab, and you got a cut for every one that you got wrong. Oh. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Like me at St. Bernard's, I forgot two mistakes <laughs> in Latin homework. You got the strap. If you want to get somebody to join a band, the best way to do it is get them to go to a Christian Brothers College. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they graduate with a chip on both shoulders and then form a band. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and you can put up with the hotel rooms too on the way on the on, on the route to the Hume Highway, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the book, Kev was just telling me all of the titles are names of songs from 1967. Yeah, yeah, every, the, every the chapter. Chapters. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, every chapter's there. Look, it was just a, a, a bit of extra fun that um, as I was doing it, some of them, you know, really kind of uh, echo what's happening in the in the chapter of the book. Other ones, not quite, but, um, but a lot of them did. And it was just, you know, a lot of fun to do. I actually did a single to go with the book too, Summer yeah. of Blood, and uh, – so I did that with my friend Tony Durant. So just things to – look, I, did, I had a great time doing it and, and hopefully people enjoy reading it, but I just wanted to enhance the experience as much as possible. Now, just from a book point of view, you bring back a couple of characters that were in an early book, a couple of detectives, and you, you transplant these two Aussie detectives into into LA. We don't want to give away what happens in the book, but you, you send them to LA and San Francisco. That's the premise of, of what, what happens here, and they're chasing someone, a missing person. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, without giving, we're not giving too much away to say that from my book, um, Big Bad Blood, which was the second crime novel that I wrote, and uh, Ray Shearer and John Gordon, who were two detectives in King's Cross in Sydney in that book. And uh, I'd always wanted to do another uh, story with them, but I didn't quite have the right story. I didn't have one that was quite big enough or just not, not right in their oeuvre, but this one, I started thinking of this idea, oh, what if two cops went to 
you know, America and California in the summer, and they're looking for an Aussie student who's the son of an important guy who's tuned in and dropped out, taken too much acid and dropped out of Berkeley. And and their job is to try and find where he is because the local cops can't find him. And and then what happens after that is it becomes more and more involved and and they start to um, become part of a a murder investigation. And, uh, yeah, so that that was kind of the premise to get them there. But I'd like bringing those guys back, and it took me 20-odd years to do it, but I finally got there. How do you you research a a detective novel? Because as a musician, you're hardly an expert in forensic or detective work. So how much research do you have to do to be able to write a detective novel, and what did you do, I guess? Well, I suppose it, it it varies a lot as to what um, people are doing. The good thing about setting something in 1967 is a lot of the kind of forensic and scientific stuff you don't have to bother about too much. Um, the previous yeah. no- novel that I did and the next one, which is set in contemporary times with my other one of my other detectives, Dan Clement, who works out of the Kimberley up in the northwest of Western Australia, because they're contemporary, you have to deal with... Oh, how far? How can you track a mobile phone? Can you crack a computer? Fortunately, in 1967, you didn't have much of that that you had to bother with. You know, fingerprints and a couple of other things. <laughs> but, but, but the other thing in terms of research is, look, some some novelists research it an awful lot. Others, not so much at all. They're just primarily in the fun of the story. You know, I'm kind of somewhere in between. The good thing with this uh, book, Summer of Blood, was that in terms of the research, I. Uh, going back through, I wanted to set it as as tightly and as you know with as much veracity as possible in '67. So I went back and there's so many things about the um, about the concerts at that time that I was able to find every concert that that happened and real concerts that happened uh, and where they were. And your research was obviously done, uh, you know, at the transistor underneath the pillow back in uh, in Perth in 1967, listening to the ABC of all places to get your musical education. Yeah, well, for those of us who uh, I'm pretty sure it would have been the same in Melbourne and Queensland. Maybe Melbourne was a little bit hipper, but we didn't have any underground music at all. Um, but uh, there was a DJ, Peter Holland, out of uh, Perth, who used to play what we would call underground, and that was the only place you were ever likely to hear the Grateful Dead or Jimi Hendrix or, or something. And so all of us who were into listening to you know underground music rather than bubblegum and pop music, that's where we went. Now, now, with the book, did you want to put lyrics in the book and, and uh, record companies started asking you for money? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was, uh, that was disappointing. I mean, it's a, it's a novel. I kind of get that if, you were doing, if you're doing a book that's about specific bands and those songs and that time, but this one was purely about uh, uh, a story, you know, a fictional story, and, and I thought that the lyrics would have been great, would have enhanced the book and certainly would have enhanced it for the reader and maybe sold a few more, or you know, got a few more strings for them. But uh, yeah, they wanted about three, three to five hundred dollars a song. Which, seeing as I've got fifty songs in there, was going to be <laughs> far exceeding the sales of the book. Yeah, tell us about the cameos that you put in the book from the likes of Elvis Presley and and Janis Joplin. Yeah. Well, uh, Janis is um, she features really strongly in the book, and I uh, I had this kind of idea that Ray Shearer, who is my uh, one of my cops. He's, he's a corrupt cop, but it, but it has his own kind of moral principles. But works out of King's Cross, so there wouldn't be too many non-corrupt cops in King's Cross in the nineteen sixties. And uh, he uh, he comes across Janet. He defends her when she's in the liquor store and she's getting a bit of lip from the liquor store owner. And they kind of uh, have a thing and get it on, as they say. And um, it was a lot of so it was it was enjoyable 
playing with that idea of my character, Ray and Janice, who was kind of an unlikely pair in one way, but in other ways, you know, they, they might be and um, they might get together. And, you know, the good thing about Los Angeles and San Francisco in 67, you did have things like Elvis was shooting films in LA at the time and, and Ray Shearer, again, he's a big Elvis fan, but as it turns out, he, he misses out on the, on meeting Elvis, but um, but his mate John Gordon actually does. So it was just, look, more more stuff that was good fun and, you know, if you were around at that time, it was certainly within the realms of possibility. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I, I, anything's got Elvis and Janis Joplin and it's a real good start, isn't it? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> now, the playlist you put together for this as well that uh, that sort of is an adjunct as well to the to the book? Yeah, I did a, uh, a you know, the classic Spotify uh, playlist and I, I would, did basically every song that appears in the book in some way or another, like whether it's um, something they go into a bar and they might be hearing the Bo Brummels play or whoever or, you know, he loved doing and more again. So I, every song, there's, there's a playlist, and uh, if you get the book, you can find where the playlist is and go on and have a listen to it. And that can also enhance the experience a little bit as you, you know, sit back and read a chapter or two with the uh, White Shade of Pale or <laughs> Nights in White Satin going in behind you. Oh, very nice. Summer of Blood is the name of the book. Now, you're, you're about to go back out on tour again, is that right? You're going to be doing some music gigs? Yeah, well, just just two this time. We did the original suburbs. We hadn't that particular lineup hadn't played for forty four years, and we played in July and uh, did Perth and New South Wales. We wanted to play. We wanted to play particularly uh, Queensland and Melbourne, but it was a bit hard to get um, Queensland together. But we're doing just one gig in Sydney and one in Melbourne in November, playing all the songs from my two probably uh, most well known albums, Mugs Game and Free Kicks, and. Uh, with the with the original lineup, barring uh, Johnny Leopard, who um, left this mortal coil about uh, eighteen years ago, so oh, okay. we haven't got Johnny, but we've got the rest of us. Wow! I remember supporting you at the Pier Hotel in Frankston, oh, yes, about nineteen eighty three or so. And you know, I loved the band because I, I I liked your lyrics. You know, you spoke about things that were very real to you know people like me and Australians, I guess. But you had one song. <laughs> and it just really stood out to me. It was possibly the silliest song I've ever heard, but it was so silly it was great. And I'm talking about a song called Cookaburra Girl. Does that... <laughs> She's a cookaburra girl. <laughs> that was, that yeah. was right out there. That was the beauty. Will you be playing Cookaburra Girl on the next we, we, We're going to do Cookaburra Girl, Brian. It, it's actually uh... – the highest uh, ranking single, it made number two in Launceston. That's the highest position I've held in a chart uh, position. <laughs> position. Wow. But yeah, we're doing it. And as you say, it was silly. I wanted to do a a novelty song. It was at that time when, um, you know, Ultravox and all that, they all had the style hair and they were, you know, everything was yeah. portentous. And uh, I just wanted to do something that was um, kind of right back to, you know, rockabilly, fun, you know, country and western type of. Roots and so uh, came up with Cookaburra Girl. So we definitely will be doing Cookaburra Girl. And um, what's the one about boy from Brixton meets a guy from Brooklyn? There's going to be a hell of a fight. Is that is that right? Yeah, that yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Brixton versus Brooklyn. That's on the list too. Yeah, that was from the uh, uh, from the This Is My Planet album in 1980. So that's definitely on. Yeah. So. A couple of those big favourites we're doing, Halftime at the Football, People Always Like, and um, 
yeah, one or one or two others from the more uh, modern albums, but most of the material, all the material from Mugs Game, and uh, a couple of most of the material from Free Kicks, and and then one or two others of, the, of that nature. Yeah, beautiful, oh, cool. Hey, um, the screenwriting. Are you doing any of that? I mean, obviously, uh, Summer of Blood would uh, would lend itself to be a, a, a fabulous screenplay. I would have thought. Uh, you've written a couple of movies and done a few things. Are you still working in that area? Yeah, look, I'm not um, full time. Like for about ten years, I was working very full on in television, yeah. trying to get some food on the table and and uh, get the kids through school and do all that stuff. So I'm still I'm doing um, various uh, screenplays, mainly these days, mainly feature movies. But you never know; there it's on spec, and or it's on spec, or you might have might be commissioned on the basis of a you know some grant that someone's got. But you're never quite sure whether whether that will happen. But, you know, look, all sorts of writing. I'm still doing some stage um, musicals and stage plays and stuff that I'm working on too. And it's, uh, you know, I just I, I enjoy it. I enjoy uh, writing and I certainly enjoy writing with music and performing. And so you just try and find enough space in the day to do all of that. The, the In Excess one you did do, was that was that uh, good fun to do or was that a bit of a, a tough what one to do? What was the In Excess one? Never Tear Us Apart. Leading. Oh, the yeah. did you write that? The, the the telling movie. I was one of the co-writers on that, oh, and that uh, great. yeah, look, it was it, it, it was it was good. It was good to see the in excess boys who I met. In fact, gave them gigs in Perth in the old days. The Farris boys, and yeah. um, uh, so it, it was. Yeah, it was really good to do. Good to do an Australian thing, and and great feedback from people who enjoyed it. But you also did you know a lot of responsibility to try and get something that. Um, uh, the band and the you know the people um, behind involved also liked so that's the thing when you're doing somebody's true story it's um there's a lot more responsibility on you than when you're just making it up you know <laughs> yeah exactly you did ten uh, episodes of McLeod's Daughters you wrote ten episodes of that too didn't you oh yeah I look it might have even been more but certainly I would have I wrote a number of episodes of that and plotted a lot of. Um, Stories for McLeod's daughters, and a few of those around the sort of um, late nineties, early two thousands, up to about two thousand and twelve. I did a lot of television. Uh, another show called The Wild Boys and um, uh, Rescue Special Ops plotted a lot of those things. They were, you know, tended to be those big one hour dramas, and um, yeah, that that was also you know interesting. And and again, hard work. You know, like a lot of responsibility when you know that there's going to be. A million people or something watching the show the next week. You, <laughs> you want to try and make it as good as possible. Yeah, well, a lot of responsibility given to the amount of money that uh, that, that I'm sure you were reminded about was being used to make every episode. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, not as much as with the American things, and that's one thing that you really got to admire Australian screenwriters and television writers because you look at American or even English shows sometimes, certainly the American ones, and the budget they've got, they can say, oh, well, we're going to set this here, we'll put that in the car yard and, and we'll have 100 cars on there and then we'll take it down to the wharf. Well, you know, when you're working, the reality is when you're doing television in Australia, we were limited to 50 scenes absolutely maximum and maybe five locations or something. So, you know, it took a lot of skill to... Um, uh, a lot of craft to try and work a story within those constraints. And um, so that was one of the, you know, the difficult things about writing for television. But uh, it also, as you say, it was it was good fun to be part of it and great fun to work with other writers and creative, the directors and actors and stuff. Really good fun. Yeah. Well, you you wrote um, 
a slasher movie for Mushroom Pictures with Molly <laughs> Ringwald and Kylie. Now, I've got to think to myself, writing a slasher movie, that would be the most fun. And do you detail how they're going to die when, <laughs> or does the director do that? Tell us about writing a slasher movie. Yeah, well, it was. I think I wrote the first draft of that in about two weeks. Um, my good friend Kimball Rendell um, was the uh, director and uh, Martin Savini um, the producer and we got together and said, oh, let's, let's do a slasher film. It would be fun to do. And so uh, uh, you write it as best you can and then, again, depending on what the production constraints are, some of those things might change. And um, uh, But Kimball, uh, you know, the director gets to – he, he gets to do the, the final call about, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to chop them in half with a saw or you know, whatever's happening is going to go his way. But um, it's a lot of – it's a good good place to start for um, screenwriters, uh, slasher movies. Yeah, yeah, I always thought that would be really fun because, you know, it's sort of – you get some young teenagers, they can kill them one by one just to have really yeah. inventive ways of killing them and, um, <laughs> you know, get some boobs out. If they get their boobs out, they have to die. If they take drugs, they have to die. <laughs> but, yeah, I think um, that would be, that'd be the, the thing I most um, would think would be the most fun, you know, McLeod's. Oh, no, you'd be, you, you, you're to totally suited to it, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, I've got a scene where I want to break somebody's teeth with a bottle opener. I think that'll work better than flooding New York. People hate the dentist. But anyway. Now, Dave, I want to ask you, what does being in the WA Rock and Roll uh, Hall of, um, of Renown mean? Is it like a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame but a West Australian version? Is that what that is? Basically it is, yes. It means okay. a little plaque that I've got that I'm looking at right now on my wall. And, uh, uh, yeah, at one stage – they, um, I don't know, I think it's still called the Rock and Roll, um, it's actually the Rock and Roll of Renown, That's and right. um, yeah, and uh, they didn't even know I was a member at one point because I said, oh, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't got an invite to something. <laughs> so I had to take a photo of the uh, um, of my little plaque and uh, send it off to them so that they actually remembered that I was, you know, uh, at one stage I was inducted. I think I was the inaugural inductee with Dave Hole, who uh, people may know, famous yeah. West Australian, you know, blues guitarist. And uh, so I think we were the inaugural duck tees when it started. Um, but apart from that, uh, I do get uh, now a lovely invite. Um, but unfortunately, because I'm living in Sydney and it goes on in Perth, I, I miss the uh, the awards most most years. But, um, yeah, that's, that's what it entails, uh, a nice little plaque on the wall. Okay. Now, so, and what uh, the WA State Living Treasure, you're one of those. I imagine that's kind of Dennis Lilly and you and uh, the people who've made WA what it is. This is restricted to the arts, this one, uh, okay. uh, Kevin. Yeah, so Sorry. it's... Um, Dennis yeah, Lilly was an artist. Dave, Jesus, that's sacrilege. What did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> well, very, very true, especially the music he made with the aluminium bat <laughs> uh, as he, he fronted up the jar of me and Dad, you know. Uh, <laughs> very rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, who can forget? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that, that was funny. It's a bit of a worry when they give you that one, though, because... You think the end is nigh, you know. <laughs> most of us have. Uh, you, you don't get that till you've hit sixty, and uh, so then you then you start counting down the days after that. Yeah, because the the next one you get is the WA State Non Living Treasure, which is <laughs> which is one that no one ever talks about. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's no, one that certainly no one wants in their portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Spe- speaking of cricket, does it shit you that our opening batsman has the same name as you? Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, all the time you get, you know, every time you get it, oh, I thought you'd be in India opening that, you know, you go, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's all right for the first, what, 135 times and then after that it's it a bit weary. <laughs> Must be interesting when people who don't know anything about you Google Dave Warner and come to you to do an interview about your book and go, I never knew you played cricket. <laughs> well, well, more the other way is the, is the interesting thing when I get invites to, oh, we'd like you to attend the STC, you and your, you and your lovely wife to attend the STC, you know, luncheon. And uh, so, um, so I don't know how they get it mixed up, but they do. And then, of course, with the, uh, the ball tampering, I, I did feel sorry for poor, uh, my poor namesake, Dave Warner, because um, uh, there, there were a number of – Sitting on the couch watching TV. <laughs> Sorry, well, there was a, there was a lot of abusive uh, emails that came to me. You know, ah, oh, can't believe you, scum, and but also a few um, who were on on his side. You know, oh yeah, I'm with you. You know, uh, give the poms whatever. <laughs> so it was interesting being mistaken for uh, uh, for the other day, Warner. Uh, very good, very good. Well, Summer of Blood, bloody, uh, bloody good, uh, great idea, terrifically uh, put together and uh, hopefully it becomes, you know, iron. it's got movie written all over it, hasn't it? Surely. Well, oh, look, I'd love it to be a movie. I think it would be a great movie and a couple of, you know, some fantastic uh, roles for two Australian uh, uh, young males there who could uh, find themselves in... Hollywood and California. So, yeah, look, whatever yeah. influences you've got there, my friends, um, <laughs> spin it around. Well, we can, well who, Brian and I can do it as long as you want to make it into a slasher film. <laughs> <laughs> who would you cast as the detectives? Have you had any thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh, oh you get yeah, anyone well. Anyone you want. Anyone you want. Well, anyone. Look, look, you, you've got to go for. Um, um, Big Chris down there in uh, Byron Bay, don't you? You'd want yeah, him as the, young, go the young, the young detective. Now, the older detective could be a guy Pierce, or it could be, uh, uh, maybe, oh, you know, Russell. Russell probably have to be the inspector these days, or the you know the superintendent. He'd have probably to go a little on a bit diet. Old. He'd have to go on a diet, shave the beard, if he wanted to be the older detective. Well, he's chubbed mm-hmm. up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's probably, but yeah, you know, I reckon. It, I think a, a guy Pierce would. Um, yeah, I think that could. You know, that could yeah, work with uh, with one of the hem with one of the Hemsworths. But you know, yeah, yeah. I reckon that that'd be a nice little pairing. Um, we've, got a, we've got a marketable, bankable uh, cast that works for me. I'm, I'm there. <laughs> and Russell, oh, well, Russell Crowe could play Elvis. Yeah, wow. Well, yeah, there, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there'd be a few spots, <laughs> and I reckon there could be. A, look, there's got to be a spot for a couple of spots for uh, us as well. You know, like Brian and I could, we could hang out as just bearded people in Eric Burden's band or something in the background. <laughs> oh, you know, I'd love to be uh, Eric Burden and more. He'd be singing <laughs> in the chorus of "Spill the Wine." I can just see <laughs> that. I can just see that. <laughs> I tell you what, Vanessa Amorossi could sing the shit out of um, the. Uh, you know, what's her name? Janice Joplin part. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yep. I don't uh, know if she can act, but she can certainly sing it. 
Yeah, and, and there's a lot of every time the DJ comes on the uh, on the radio, that could be uh, Kevin, you know, the voiceover. That just a little, a bit of an American accent, obviously, but yeah, you know, yeah. That, that could work. Now yeah. you're talking, brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get this thing started. I'm ready. I'm gonna go grow a beard so uh, I can be in Eric Burden's band. <laughs> He's bass player. <laughs> With a caftan, you know. Yeah. Oh God, That's yes. That's the only way to do yes, it. Yes, God, way to yes. Do it. Yes. Yeah. Hey, uh, Dave, thanks so much for talking to us, mate. Good luck with the book. It's fantastic. And uh, and uh, the gigs, uh, look forward to them and, uh, and uh, you know, whatever else you got coming up, seeing you're such a yeah. talent, multi-talented man. Uh, thanks for your support and uh, very much appreciated. Yeah, I look forward to it. See you on the set of the gig when we're in our big trailers. <laughs> <laughs> There's your song. There's the one you. It's the one you remember so fondly, Brian. Yeah, Copper Girl. 
so stupid. I think it's great, and um, I think that's the brilliance of it. But uh, what a good fellow. And uh, perfect for Christmas, apparently, uh, from uh, Fremantle Press is Summer of Blood by Dave Warner. So check that one out. So you get the book for Uncle Whoever and uh, the Murcott's driving lessons for the the nephews. Yep. And perhaps Granddad, he could do with a bit of a top up with the driving skills. And the other thing you can do is jump on uh, Facebook, have a look at your Facebook page, have a look at the dates that you're appearing next year because I know you put some up uh, just this week, uh, some of the dates you've got coming up, and buy someone a, a, a ticket to go to one of your shows next year. Well, there you go. I didn't even think of that. I should be doing that every week. There is, <laughs> there is Christmas all wrapped up in a bow. Well, there you go. Uh, it's been a wonderful year. Uh, thank you for your support, the people listening to this podcast. Thanks to Murcotts for their support. Brian, thanks for your support. It's been a terrific year. We've talked to some unbelievable people this year when I look over the you, list. You kind of forget, you know, half the people that we've spoken to along the journey. Um, you know, I was just thinking the other day something came up about Gary Newman. It's not, yeah, we spoke to Gary Newman. <laughs> uh, you know, you you kind of forget, you know, oh, yeah, we spoke to the guy from Cheap Trick. Yeah, okay. Someone said to me yeah. the other day, do you know Nick Kershaw was touring? I said, yeah, did you know we talked to him on the podcast about nine months ago? Oh, did yeah, you? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's amazing. Amazing the people we've spoken to. It's been, a, a, again, an absolute joy to do this and uh, to, to catch up with all those people that we've spoken to. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Brian, have a, have a lovely Christmas and uh, a Gold Coast New Year, whatever that means. Yeah, okay. Uh, and uh, credit to you, Kev, for uh, keeping the show on the rails and um, finding us some great guests. So well done. Merry Christmas to you and the fam. And many more coming, I can tell you, including uh, the lady who did that unbelievably great song, Don't You Know Yakamo. Remember? Oh, Dinah Lee. Dinah Lee's going to join us. Uh, we have all sorts of people coming up uh, in the new year. I have a show just before uh, the new year, but uh, this is the last one before Christmas. So uh, from Brian and myself, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, uh, and enjoy yourselves. Rock on. See you, Brian. See you, mate. Words may fall apart and love may die That comes as no surprise I've seen it Take my heart But you won't take my hand Now could you understand I can see it Could you understand? I can see.